Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. Religion in America is undergoing a revolution. In 1972, 90% of Americans were self-professed Christians. Now that number is about 64%. There are now large and growing populations of non-Christians, as well as many who have no particular religious beliefs. Such a time of change has made it a particularly exciting time to be a scholar of religion, charged with making sense of the shifting landscape of the American religious experience. For today's conversation, Zach Davis sat down with one of those scholars, Charles Stang, the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard Divinity School. Zach went to grad school at HDS, and Charlie was one of his very favorite professors. In this conversation, Charlie discusses his life as a scholar of religion, the path his own spiritual life has taken, and he shares details about the exciting new research initiative he's leading at Harvard called Transcendence and Transformation. Charles M. Stang is a professor of early Christian thought at Harvard Divinity School and the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions. His research and teaching focus on history and theology of Christianity, in particular asceticism, monasticism, and mysticism in early Christianity. His most recent book, Our Divine Double, was published in 2016 by Harvard University Press. We're so excited to share this fascinating conversation with you, and we really hope that you enjoy it. And with that, I'll hand it over to Zach. Charlie Stang. You're a mentor and a friend. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Faith Matters Podcast. Could we begin with you introducing yourself to our listeners? How did you begin to study religion the way that you do? What was it that pulled you into this path? And as you look back on your academic career, what are those questions that you've continually been circling around? Well, thank you, Zach. It's a pleasure to be in conversation with you as always. And um, that's a great opening question. I don't really know how to access my interest in religion and it's the origins of it. I know that as an adolescent, I became gripped by certain kinds of existential questions that I first hoped would be addressed by my church community. Um, I was raised in the United Church of Christ in suburban Minneapolis. To be perfectly honest, my upbringing in the church I found pretty wanting. I was mostly just bored by church. I wasn't so much repelled as I was just bored. I don't remember really i heard a lot of sermons i don't remember listening to a single sermon um so when these existential questions began to arise in me about you know sort of cliched almost what are we what are we humans what are we doing here are we meant to be in relationship to the divine are we ourselves divine? I turned to um, Christianity. And I don't want to impugn Christianity as in, in 
Toto, but I didn't find that the church community I was a part of really was particularly interested in fielding those questions. College was a real turning point for me because although I had those sort of existential questions that I, I would now label as religious or spiritual questions, I first turned to literature and philosophy to get traction on them. Um, literature repelled me immediately, uh, the study of literature in college. I thought I would love it, and I found out that whatever went under the banner of literary criticism in the university bore little interest, uh, bore little relationship to my um, the questions I was bringing to bear, uh, the questions I wanted addressed. But I did find a resonance with philosophy, uh, at least for a time. I loved the study of philosophy and threw myself into it. But I also found that the places in philosophy where I could ask the kinds of questions I was interested in were at the margins of philosophy. They were either in ancient philosophy or they were in continental philosophy. And the, the main current of philosophy in this country, as you I'm sure know, is what's called Anglo-analytic philosophy. And those, that main tradition seemed to have little interest in um, the sorts of questions I was interested in. And so I happily lived in philosophy for a time. But when it came time to leave college and think about what might come next, um, two things happened. One is I think I got tired of my adolescent atheism, which was a sort of brief phase in my life. Um, it's sort of strange that I was a, an atheist for maybe two or three years, if I'm honest. And I think I was honestly a kind of half-hearted atheist even then. And I sort of gave up on that. I stopped. I just, uh, I stopped pretending that I was an atheist. And I thought I can be a theist without being Christian. As I had sort of given up, when I had given up on theism, I had given up on Christian theism. And then I, so I, when I returned to religion, it was first and foremost by believing in in God, or maybe even if it's better to say the sacred, I wasn't sure that God, that the, that the divine that was pulling me was, at that time, I wasn't sure it was a person. God the Father, or God the Son, or God the Spirit. Um, so, but I'm, I'm sort of tacking back and forth between two things. Because I can't really disentangle my academic trajectory from my religious life because they've been entangled from the very beginning. And that's a wonderful privilege I've had in life to be able to pursue a profession, namely the study of religion, that addressed and uh, explored these existential questions that I would label spiritual and religious. But on the other hand, that's been a bit of a devil's bargain because when one makes one's profession uh, too close to one's existential pursuits, uh, your, ex your existential pursuit can become professionalized. And uh, so I've had, a, I've had a, a bit of a dance with that over the last 30 years of my life. But anyway, to get back to the main the narrative, um, I, I decided that I had unfairly shed my Christian identity 
at the end of college and thought that I needed to both um, not just study Christianity, but to sort of step back into it and inhabit it. And at the same time, I realized philosophy was not a place I could ask and answer the kinds of questions I was interested in. The study of religion was actually much more capacious. It included a lot of philosophers that the study, that academic philosophy had largely discarded. And so I stepped into that field very happily um, in my early 20s. And I've more or less stayed there ever since. So um, that takes me to my mid-20s, where I was studying ancient Christianity, ancient Greek philosophy, and uh, also curious turned took me to the study of Arabic and early Islam. At the same time, I was still trying to keep my interest in some of these philosophers alive, philosophers who in many ways were hostile to religion, but I thought that became for me incredibly powerful sources of religiosity. So I'm thinking of people like Nietzsche in particular was a huge catalyst for my return to religion ironically, a huge catalyst for my return to Christianity. Um, I think in some ways Nietzsche's book, The Antichrist, which he wrote late in life, was catalyzed my own interest in learning about early Christianity. Can you say more about why Nietzsche's writing inspired you? Was it the seriousness with which he took these questions? Yeah, I mean, Nietzsche took... (laughs) Nobody takes questions as seriously as Nietzsche. <laughs> uh, I mean, oh, the thing that first caught me in Nietzsche's web, I, I think, is both his style, at least in English. Of course, I wasn't reading German at that then. Um, and still now my German isn't uh, good enough to read Nietzsche's style, uh, Nietzsche in German. His style or even his translation is so captivating. Um, and I didn't fall into the typical adolescent male love of Nietzsche, where you think that you are the Ubermensch and you are beyond good and evil. Um, I was, I was thankfully saved from that pitfall. But what really gripped me with Nietzsche was this idea that we can become so much more than we are. That was like a, call like a siren call that just went straight into the center of me and i think it was what i was was always hoping christianity would be about and in some way of course christianity is about that but the the version of christianity i encountered in a suburban midwestern upper middle class white church seemed not at all to foreground that project of um self-transformation so I I heard it in Nietzsche and I fell hard for him. And that question has been an absolute mainstay of my adult life, personal and professional, academic and existential. What is the human? What can we become in relationship to what we're calling the divine? And I spent a large portion of my adult life trying to explore that within the bounds of the church and have 
stepped out of the bounds of the church more recently, uh, both personally and uh, professionally. So your suburban church that that didn't fulfill you and the church that in recent years also failed to meet your spiritual needs, would you say it was because culturally it was a justification for bourgeois complacency, that it was hard for the people in these communities to maybe take seriously the radical call of Jesus? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, first of all, some of my very closest friends and collaborators are in the church. And so what I'm going to say goes for me. (laughs) My frustration with Christianity, contemporary Christianity, at least of the flavor I encountered, which was, you know, I've been in the, I was in the Episcopal church for about 20 years with more or less degrees of enthusiasm uh, is I I don't think it really, they believe in God. I don't think they believe in the transcendent. I don't think they believe in the transformative. I think it is overwhelmingly about do-gooding and with a with a kind of biblical veneer or biblical mandate and i think the call to do good the radical call to love your enemy that jesus um demands is a hugely transcendent and transformative call but I don't really see that foregrounded. I see my experience of Christianity as a lot of people who sort of roll their eyes at the explicitly religious part of this religion and are there partly to, largely to instill morality in their children and to feel a kind of call to do good in the world. And I don't know that I think we need Christianity or any other religion, to do good in the world. I think we can do good in the world quite apart from that. I needed something else from religion than that. There are so many Latter-day Saints who I think are leaving their own communities, their congregations, for a lot of a similar reason, that it feels stale, that it can't deliver on the transformation that is promised, which in the Latter-day Saint tradition is actually really radical, as you know. But um, a lot of the people leaving don't really know what else to do. And I fear that the alternative to stale American middle-class Christianity is stale middle-class secular nothingness. So Could you share a bit about how you yourself are trying to awaken from the slumber and shake yourself into a different plane? And is the path that you have been on something that any seeker could pursue? Mm -hmm. Great question. Yeah, I do recognize myself as a seeker. I think it's fair. (laughs) Um, I'm proud to be a seeker. I think one thing that has kept me in Christianity has been 
recognizing that whatever frustrations I may have with the contemporary church, this is a tradition with amazing resources, sages to be studied and followed. And so I have tried to find my sages and and follow them. And you don't need that many sages in your life. Uh, you just need a handful. And some of mine are Christian and will always, I suspect they'll always be sages for me. And some of my sages aren't Christians. So I would say one thing for these, you know, the disaffected is go back to your tradition and look for the, the, the sources of living water. They're always there. And that may be within the LDS tradition itself, or it may be part of the longer Christian arc that, you know, from which the LDS church um, emerges. Uh, so I've done that. I've also, you know, over, I mean, I was, I was raised in the Midwest, but I've been in New England now longer than I was in the Midwest. And even when I was in the Midwest, my, no, in no small part due to my mother, I had a huge crush on the New England transcendentalists. And I love the New England transcendentalists. And I am proud to be part of that lineage. Uh, I would like to think that they would be proud to have me in theirs. I don't know. But this initiative that we're, do, we're following here at the center called Transcendence and Transformation is quite obviously an attempt to <laughs> um, connect ourselves to that ancestry. Um, so when I think about what did those disaffected Christians, and Emerson was certainly a disaffected Christian, do, he found sages within and with outside the Christian church, and he activated a what he called a new animism. And I, too, find that category very um, suggestive and appealing. And that is, you know, he tried to activate a relationship to the world in which we are not, we humans are not the sole um, agents of consciousness walking in an inert landscape, but in fact, we are oh, crowded with other persons, non-human persons, other than human persons, more than human persons, and that this world is alive vibrantly so with consciousness and he found that both reflected in some of the sources that he um, and others were excavating from the quote-unquote western tradition and i think he just found it activated in this landscape and i've worked really hard especially in the last five to ten years to do that to step into this landscape and let it introduce itself quite literally and speak. And as I've learned to listen, I have met all kinds of persons out and around these parts. I was just in Italy in Assisi and I learned uh, more about St. Francis. And 
I had seen these pictures of St. Francis and birds. Yeah. And it turns out the story is that he was walking with some followers and there was this flock of birds in the field and he walked up to them and they didn't fly away. They welcomed his presence and he went about preaching a sermon to them and they listened attentively. And he became known as being a great lover of the natural world. And he wrote a hymn called Canticle of the Creatures. And he addressed the celestial bodies in familiar ways. He said, let us praise brother sun and sister moon. This way of seeing ourselves in concert and communion with creatures of all kinds is both a radically new way of living in the world and also the most ancient. I'm wondering if you could share more about how your feeling in the world has changed as you've tried to pay attention to the more-than-human world. And one way that my own spiritual practice has changed is I, I was taught that prayer was done in like set ways at set times with set words. And as I've gotten older, I've tried to think of prayer as a kind of receptivity to spiritual realities that can give me power, give me strength. And I I have a feeling that paying attention to um, the non-extractive world can be a kind of prayer. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> One answer to your question is about, it must be about six years ago now, we got a dog. <laughs> and two things came from that. One is, I've grown up with animals my whole life. I've grown up with dogs, cats, rodents. But this was our first pet as a family. And we got an, un- an unusual dog, a dog with remarkable powers of perception and communication. Her name is Zena. But we also got a dog, she's a Vishla, and the Vishlas need, especially when they're young, they need to be off-leash, outside, every day. And so my wife and I, sometimes together, sometimes apart, were outside with our dog every day through all seasons. And that was a bit of a baptism in the animate world. First of all, because we had this animate being, Zena, who was, as I said, remarkably communicative, like sometimes frighteningly so. And not just communicative, but perceptive of your states can't tell you how uncanny it is what she knows about us uh but the other thing is that being outside every day sometimes twice a day with her in the woods mostly was an introduction to a a very vividly animate world so that was one thing so that was a practice that i wasn't expecting and then I started reading around in what's sometimes called neo-animism. So these are folks today who are trying to revive that category, which was a term of derision for largely indigenous traditions around the world 
uh, in late 19th century um, anthropology. Animist traditions were framed as sort of primitive forms of religion, and that, and, and that the evolution of religion, of course, tended towards monotheism, Christian monotheism being the perfection of that. Uh, evolutionary scheme. But in any case, we were, I was reading around, prompted by students here at the CSWR, I might add, in neo-animist literature. And that was giving me new vocabulary that was also feeding into my practice, and my practice was enriching the reading. Uh, and I was also uh, beginning to get into the this very vibrant world of anthropology of, the, of Amazonia. Um, Eduardo Cohen's book, How Forests Think, was my gateway drug into that world. And that's something I've continued to, to derive a lot of uh, value from. That sounds so bloodless to say derive value. That has also and continues to bend my mind um, out in the world. Um, and then also I'd say, you know, you mentioned St. Francis, who I, I regard as unfortunately a bit of a lone voice. There aren't there are few prominent Christian animists uh, in the tradition. Uh, but I was a, I, I've also derived great benefit from going back to um, you know, the world I know better, which is the ancient Mediterranean world, and looking at other kinds of polytheistic animate, animist worldviews. Uh, and 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 uh, trying to inhabit those as well, and that also has been really profitable for me. Sometimes it can seem to me that the seeker path can be pretty individualistic, and in my tradition, the sacred is in the service to the community and to those who need support and love. If someone's thinking, okay. I'm bored with my current church and I want to grow spiritually, but I know that I'm really shaped and changed and transformed in communities of reciprocity. How do you approach that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a fantastic question. And I think it's one that really, I don't want to say plagues the seeker spirituality, but it maybe haunts it. I take inspiration from what I'm going to call communities of discernment or fellowships of spirituality that have stepped out of the ready-made community of church, but have but in recognition that they need to form other fellowships, other communities. So again, I'll mention, I think the transcendentalists recognize this. They weren't just a collection of individuals. They were a um, deeply entangled community of uh, thinkers and practitioners. Uh, one of the things that attracted me to this center, to serving as the director here, was the possibility that this could be such a community. Both the residents who live here but also the community of scholars we could attract uh, to uh, think, write, teach, read, and practice together. 
And it has been that for me. It hasn't been a smooth sail start to finish, but it has been that for me. So I think for those seekers out there, I, I mean, I think there's, I think there's a Scylla and Charybdis here. I think there is oftentimes traditional Christianity will scorn seeker spirituality for being individualistic and, um, you know, the, 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 the terms change, but the basic charge is the same, you know, neoliberal salad bar spirituality. I think that's unfair in as a, it's a caricature. Uh, it's speaking some truth, but the fact is a lot of traditional Christianity is also at least modern American Protestant Christianity is also individualized salad bar spirituality. So uh, it's not, it seems unfair to, to just lay, um, burden speaker spirituality with that. Um, so that's, uh, that's one end of the spectrum skilla. Um, and, and Charybdis at the other end is something like, well, if you, you're, you're out of fear of being an individual or, uh, you stay in a kind of stale, stagnant, in some cases, even repressive community because it's comfortable and you know it a community that whatever was alive at its start or whatever remains alive in it is also encircled by um, a kind of suffocating cloud of legislation. And uh, I would hate people to stay in a suffocating cloud of, of legislation because they're scared that there's something selfish about being a seeker. I think I would advise people step out, be a selfish seeker, and then seek out other seekers and form cells of spiritual community. I think there is good reason to think a cellular model is what we need. Not grand churches with um, that stretch across the globe, <laughs> but cellular spirituality that can affiliate uh, but that still have some agility i'd like to ask a bit more about this initiative you've been leading transformation and transcendence what are the major currents that you and your researchers have been examining and what are you personally most energized about well it was an initiative in some way meant as a provocation. I feel like the study of religion has, not unlike contemporary Christianity, lost sight of a certain North Star, which I could just call the sacred. It doesn't really believe in the sacred. It doesn't seek to encounter the sacred. It doesn't seek to transcend or transform. I sound like retrograde when I say this, um, kind of hopelessly out of fashion. I feel as if the study of religion has tried to fit in with the humanities by becoming a kind of secular enterprise of critique, 
I think it will lose if it competes on that field. I think it is losing. I think the study of religion needs to understand that there is something unique in this enterprise and that people are drawn to it because they sense that the human is more than the humanities are telling us that it is. So it was a provocation. And a provocation that tried to give shape to that impulse around these two poles of transcendence and transformation. We're two years in. There's various threads to it. We've had um, reading groups on the divine feminine and its discontents. Merce Eliade, plant consciousness just to give you a taste. Um, we had a conference on Henri Corbin, who is a 20th century philosopher of religion, scholar of Islam, whom I think holds great treasures for uh, the study of religion and just for philosophy and spirituality more generally. Uh, we've had speaker series exploring psychedelics and the future of religion i've hosted that for three years now um and that's an ambig an ambivalent scene for me uh an ambivalent scene for me there's a lot of noise and i've been working hard to try to find the signal amidst the noise in the contemporary conversation around psychedelics and religion uh, we've had another series led by my colleague giovanna Parmigiani, who, which is on um, nociologies, which is about alternate ways of knowing uh, in the contemporary world. So every year it changes uh, according to what particular group of people we manage to attract to the center. So that's a taste of the kind of programming that we're offering under the banner. In a recent essay called The Dream of the Sphere, you wrote this beautiful manifesto for a post-critical humanities, post-critical study of religion. And I, too, remember feeling desiccation of a university where critique was the only mode. Mm -hmm. And as I have reflected on that more, like, why, why is it that all we can do is deconstruct? How, how can we construct a new vision and a new world? And I think one of the reasons why construction is harder and maybe more rare is I think it requires a living sense of the sacred. So I'd love to hear how you connect a truly living connection with the sacred, with the possibility of developing new ways of living that offer abundant life. Mm. Well, the, the title of that piece is, uh, is a reference or an allusion to a late 19th century novel called Flatland, which narrates how two-dimensional beings um, living in a two-dimensional world, so lines and um, dots and uh, 
that it, it's a it's a world of, of two dimensional beings, and and one square uh, in that world has a dream of a sphere and tries to tell all the other squares what a three dimensional object might be and how it might interact with their two dimensional world, and it's a great shock to the two dimensional world, and he's persecuted, eventually put in prison, and all talk of spheres is uh, outlawed. So I use that as a bit of a provocative analogy to where we find ourselves in the humanities today. I feel like the humanities is living in a bit of a flatland. And I believe in more than two dimensions. <laughs> I believe in many more than two dimensions to run with this analogy. So and what we're calling the sacred exists on dimensions beyond the two. Uh, so, and once we can acknowledge that, then we can begin to think critically about how the sacred interacts with the dimensions we are accustomed to perceiving. And our perception can be expanded as well, but the sacred will always exceed the capacities of our even expanded perception. So the manifesto that you read, and which is deeply tied to this initiative, is an attempt to just surface traditions and practices that recognize this and work with this reality. And the fact is, I actually think the kind of modern Western, whether it's secular or, we'll just call it the modern Western secular flatland, and its conviction that we know what is real is a huge exception in the history of humanity. And it's actually the exception in the global present. We are actually a tiny minority suffering from this view that we are convinced is the truth. And we scorn and ridicule anyone else around the globe who has a different ontology and a different epistemology. And we look down on traditions from the past that have different ontologies and different epistemologies without recognizing that we're just this thin crust on the human enterprise. And I don't think this thin crust is serving us particularly well. I think this view is deeply tied to the predicament, spiritual and environmental and political that we find ourselves in, and psychological, absolutely. So, you know, we're out here at the periphery of this university. We're a center at the periphery, quite literally, trying to use this fulcrum to bend the conversation towards transcendence and transformation, a recognition, a realization, an encounter with the sacred. And... It's been fun, and uh, I had I expected more pushback than I've received. <laughs> I suppose one way to put it is, I think the people who are skeptics just don't write. It's, but I do get regular um, notes of appreciation, so I'm grateful for that. Well, thank you for everything you're doing, Charlie, and joining us today. Thank you, Zach. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Charles Stang. And a big thanks to Charlie for coming on the show. 
If Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really does help us to get the word out about Faith Matters and we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening and remember you can check out more at faithmatters.org.